Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the Intelligent Transport Podcast. We've been on something of a hiatus during the COVID-19 pandemic, but I am really pleased now to be back with you and also back talking to Urban Mobility's best and brightest. So to get back into the swing of things, I caught up with Danny Simons at Waze to talk pandemic mobility and the responsibility that we all have to make our roads and streets better places to be. Danny, thank you very much indeed for joining me on today's episode of the Intelligent Transport podcast. It would be great just to start off by getting an idea of what your role is at Waze, uh, you know, what your role really encompasses, your route into the sector, and why you feel this is a good time to be part of this kind of new mobility landscape and scene. Um, well, thanks, Luke, so much for having me on today and inviting me to have this conversation. I'm really excited for it. Um, I am the head of public partnerships at Waze, and um, that means that I cover all of our public sector partnerships globally. Um, our team works on kind of two main tracks. Um, the first is around our data sharing program. Um, and our data sharing program um, really started as a data sharing program, a two-way data sharing program for cities um, and other government entities um, that really kind of takes some of the best of what Waze has to offer um, in terms of um, data and insights and packages it in a way for city officials to use um, and for all sorts of transportation officials to use, whether they're like a city, state level or federal level. Um, the, the kind of notion behind it is that, uh, our users ways at its core is really a crowdsourced, um, navigation app and our users are reporting a huge amount of information, um, really to each other to try to make the experience of navigating around, um, a city better. But this information is also really, um, important and useful for people who are both managing kind of day-to-day transportation incidents on the roads. Um, so, want to make sure that you're getting someone out there to clear debris on the roadway, or if there is a traffic crash, that there's an emergency responder going out there, um, but also to do kind of longer term kind of planning uh, and um, management of the transportation system as well. Um, and so the, the program encompasses that. And then we have specialized data sharing programs also for traffic broadcasters um, and for folks who manage really large um, special events, which obviously are on pause right now um, due to current global conditions, um, but ordinarily are a huge source of, um, I think, kind of traffic and traffic anxiety for cities because they tend to be so kind of spiky in their nature. Um, and we help provide some data to help people manage those events a little bit better so that they're not causing um, as much traffic uh, and they're easier to, to provide a smooth operation for um, when they're happening. The other piece of work that our team does is really working around Waze Carpool uh, and really promoting this peer-to-peer carpool platform as a way um, for cities to kind of add on to their toolbox of sustainable mobility and really um, another way to encourage people to be able to live a car-less or car-light lifestyle um, in in our urban places. And so... Um, that's something I feel super passionately about and is actually, that's really the reason that brought me to Waze, I would say. Um, my background is, uh, environmental science is my training. Um, I've worked in sustainable transportation for about 20 years now. Um, I've worked for city government. I've worked for NGOs. Um, my job, um, pretty much right before this was I helped start the city bike program, uh, in New York City, which is, 
um, one of the largest bike share systems uh, in the world um, and one of the most well-ridden in the world, obviously, uh, right up there with the with London's program as well. Um, and then I worked across um, all of our different bike share systems that our company owned and operated um, across North America um, and helped do government affairs and community relations um, and, and media relations for that company. Um, the the thing that I really loved about bike share was that I think it really took um, a layer of technology and uh, the ability of the private sector to kind of really market something um, and really kind of helped make biking, I think, more visible and more accessible to a much wider swath of people who might not have seen themselves as like a hardcore enough biker before to go out and actually buy a bike or sort of invest in the gear that that needed. But it made it just seem like just another one of many transportation options that we're lucky to have in some of our larger uh, metro areas in North America. And, you know, I think that um, for me, Ways Carpool like had a similar appeal. Um, carpooling is not a new mode. It's been around for ages. Um, but I think that people kind of really lost the the kind of belief that it could be part of a sustainable mobility uh, toolbox. And I'm, I'm really intrigued by this idea that Waze is coming in bringing this layer of really excellent technology to make it easier to find someone to carpool with, to make it um, a little bit more flexible and kind of closer to on-demand like some of the other transportation options that we have today, um, and really market it in a way that kind of positions it as as something that is kind of renewed um, and different um, and can be, I think, a really important way that we can get around um, in cities today, um, and especially in kind of big metro areas today as... as um, as our sort of land use patterns have changed. Um, so that's sort of how I got into it. Um, and yeah, I'm, I'm super excited to be here. I've been having a lot of fun. I've been at Waze for about a year and a half now. Yeah, sure. I mean, it's, it's cool that your, your like career down from bike share to carpooling, sustainable mobility, you know, it's a very kind of clear line from, from one to the other, very clear step. And I think, you know, also both involve, as you've said, uh, a lot of like data capture analysis and crucially sharing. Um, and that's kind of what I wanted to come to first um, and look a bit at those aspects uh, with regards to the coronavirus outbreak. Um, you know, Waze, as you've said, is a kind of community-based app. I mean, how important was that when it came to responding to the outbreak? And as, as part of that as well, how important was all of the data that you were collecting in, in being able to respond? I mean, I think it was incredibly important. And I think that the, um, the resilience that's built in, I think both, um, you know, at a personal level, at a community level, or even at the level of a company like this, the resilience that's built in through these kind of social connections and through having community is super, super important. And I think that the pandemic has just made that even more apparent in so many different ways. Um, I think if you have strong social ties and there are strong networks that exist, um, you see that, I see that in my neighborhood, there's mutual aid societies that are forming where neighbors are just literally helping neighbors right now because that's what we have to do. And that's going to be the best way to provide really rapid support um, to people around you, um, even if it doesn't look like a, you know, the kind of formal institutions that we might have turned to in, in, in times before. 
I think with Waze, um, the fact that we do have um, our community map editors um, and we have an amazing community, it's about half a million people um, participate in editing uh, Waze maps um, and they're volunteers and they do it because they're very passionate, I think, both about Waze, but especially about their communities and making their communities better places to live. Um, and we also have this incredible community of partners um, to be able to turn to them um, in this time to be able to make sure that we had up-to-date information um, about local routes, about routing restrictions, um, even about sort of what is changing with local businesses and helping local businesses update um, their information and the app so that they could have um, you know, more visibility and so that their customers would know when they were open or if they were offering, you know, curbside pickup or takeout and things like that was super, super important right now. Um, I think that the data that we were able to share back, um, with our partners in this time, I think was also really important. Um, and, we saw, um, you know, one of the great examples, I think, was really the the work of um, the Inter-American Development Bank, and they did rapidly developed a really remarkable dashboard that showed um, uh, information about the outbreaks in each of the countries and each of the big metropolitan areas where they operate and um, helped kind of see cases and fatalities um, in those jurisdictions. And then they put that against data about mobility and data about air quality so that people could really start to see between some of these big metro areas that kind of see themselves as peers, what policy did, you know, Lima, Peru put in place versus what policy did Bogota, Colombia put in place? And what were the impacts on mobility? What were the impacts on cases and fatalities? What were the impacts on air quality so that they could start to get kind of a comparative view um, and try to think about sort of which policies might make sense and want to be kind of promoted and elevated in that way. So um, I think all of those things um, are really a testament to the power of having a really community-based approach to how we do things and how we operate um, and to really the, the kind of resilience and kind of vibrant results that that can bring, you know, even during this incredibly challenging time. Yeah, sure. I mean, there's obviously huge value in being able to respond dynamically in, in the way that you've outlined there. I mean, even looking at country to country and region to region, uh, on a policy level, it's, you know, brings that added value to those, to those communities and to those cities, to those countries to be able to assess and, uh, even maybe Im implement policy far quicker than they would usually be able to. But what I'm wondering is for, for ways in having all of this data contributed to the platform, how do you really, how do you manage the accuracy of what's being submitted um, from your community of editors? Um, so that's a great question. Um, and I think there's kind of two, uh, there's two answers to that. There's normal times. And then there's, um, during this pandemic, I think we've sort of added on some extra protocols, um, for certain types of data. So for our road closure data, um, and for map edits in general, um, which our map editors are doing on a daily basis everywhere. I have a 
great story. One of the editors I met here in New York um, has been working with the Port Authority of New York and New Jersey, um, and they've been doing a massive amount of construction at the airports here in New York. Um, and he's been working on maintaining the road network around LaGuardia Airport, like hand in hand with the Port Authority. Um, and we went to a meeting with them, and they said that they've basically been making one update to the roadways every three days for like the last three years, which is crazy. And this map editor has kept up with them like step by step, um, which I think is really um, telling about how dedicated and involved some of our map editors really are. Um, the map editors have a credentialing system. Um, I explain it for people who are not um, in sideways to, to sort of like akin to martial arts where you get different belts um, and you get sort of more experience um, and more contributions and you kind of get elevated and you get, you know, up to your like black belt level and then you're allowed to make the most major edits. Someone who is just a starting out and is just kind of a yellow belt um, wouldn't be able to have as many permissions to change things on the maps. Um, and the map editors are, I think, very... Um, you know, proud of their ability to kind of mentor new editors um, and to guide them and to kind of help them understand both how to use the um, Waze map editor tool and also to to make sure that their work that they're submitting is is accurate um, and is is in keeping with what we would expect for Waze. Um, during the um, during some of our COVID nineteen response work, um, we were importing information that we considered to be, um, you know probably even more sensitive, um, including testing center locations. And we were taking a lot of that in actually through our government partners. Um, our protocol at first was really to only take it from government partners so that we knew that it was a trusted and authoritative source. And I think that that was especially important in a, in a time when the pandemic was just starting where a lot of testing centers were kind of overwhelmed. They did not actually want tons of people flocking there if they didn't need immediately to be tested. There were different protocols in place about whether or not you needed appointments in advance and pre-screening and things like that. So we were very, very careful in how we um, vetted that information and made sure that that was information that the government authorities actually wanted to be shared. Um, there are, you know, there are obviously some other instances like that that information kind of requires more of that betting, but um, a lot of the information that does come in from our users, um, whether that be incident data, you know, anyone can report that they see a pothole that will persist in our system for a certain amount of time. And if no one else validates that that pothole is there, it will be automatically cleared from our algorithm. So um, some things like that are kind of like fed by the community. Some things are a little bit more formal with our map editor and map editors in their credentialing program. And then some things that are extremely sensitive, we kind of put in place different protocols for. Yeah, right. So, I mean, obviously getting accuracy right is, is absolutely crucial. I mean, it's not, I think probably not just for, um, for cities and for organizations operating within a city, um, but for your users as well. And um, that brings me kind of onto my next point around as part of the response to, to the COVID-19 outbreak, you know, how, how were you ensuring that your users were, were getting the right information? And from a ways perspective, um, what's it like to have to get that in-app messaging right first time like when to drive when not to and i suppose having to balance that against kind of 
essential travel for key workers? Yeah, I mean, I think it was something that, um, again, like having the kind of community that we have and having partners and map editors that are on the ground in these communities all around the globe, I think was incredibly valuable because it allowed us to have these very, very hyper-local insights on what was happening. Um, and it really helped us, um, you know, take that and and craft in-app messaging accordingly. I think, you know, one of the challenges of being, um, you know, both so locally rooted with community members and then also a global app is that you do have some tension of like, how local can you get? Like, how customized do you want those messages to be? And there's, you know, there is some tension. I think a lot of the places um, around the world, we kind of landed on user communications that recommended that drivers drive only when necessary instead of trying to be um, so precise to the exact local restrictions. I think um, I think reinforcing kind of the the larger messages that were coming from governments around, you know, try to not drive unless you absolutely have to. I think became kind of the most important thing. And then that was combined with there were local areas. There were some places in Italy where there were, um, you know, areas cordoned off where you actually were just not allowed to drive at all within those areas. And, and that kind of information we would source from our map editors and be able to enter in. Um, during ordinary times, and we had kind of, we'd put this a little bit on pause, um, during the sort of height of the pandemic, we're bringing it back now, but during ordinary times, we also are able to kind of support, um, unplanned events as well. And I think that that's something that's really, um, something that's really valuable and something that I think our team is going to be focused on more over the next um, year or so thinking about how we work with partners is just, you know, we also saw across the U.S. huge protests um, going on that lasted for months. Some of them are, you know, seem like they're coming back again in some of the big cities in the U.S. right now. Um, some of them were, were echoed in, in Europe and in EMEA as well. Like the, the, um, those types of events, I think, are very important also for us to be able to support and communicate to drivers about. Um, no one wants to drive through a protest. No one wants to. No one wants to have that experience. There were curfews in some places um, that were put in place. No one wants to be sort of caught off guard and driving in those times if they if they know they will probably choose to make other plans. And so. Um, I think it's, I think it's also on us to continue to, um, really work with partners and with our local map editors to try to figure out how we kind of get faster on some of those things. I think in ordinary times, those are things that happen maybe like once or twice a year in a, in a big city. And I think all of a sudden, you know, in, in July, uh, in, you know, in June and July in, in New York, it seemed like it was happening every single night. Yeah, right. I think you're absolutely right. Like people don't want to be caught off guard, as you said. It's <laughs> people need to be able to feel in control. Um, and you know, yeah, it is kind of the way that technology and innovation is is helping that in terms of preparation and in terms of um, yeah, I suppose being able to properly plan ahead is you know provides huge value to, to app users um you know not just for ways but there are plenty of other examples as well so what i want to move on to next is as a mobility app 
being able to strike a balance between supporting drivers and also looking at the future of driving against the need to support your uh, your partners and cities in their goals when it comes to um, battling climate change or reassessing road use and urban planning. It's a trend that we're seeing emerging a lot in a lot of major cities and it's certainly not going to go away anytime soon. Um, I mean, that really speaks to, I think, um, something that I'm very, very passionate about, which is trying to, you know, get people out of private cars when it is possible to do so. And I think that um, one of the reasons I came to Waze was because Waze has really started to evolve its mission. Um, in the beginning, Waze had this mission around helping everyone um, avoid traffic altogether. And this idea that by reporting incidents here and there and by sharing information about traffic jams and helping that inform our algorithm, we could route people to smarter routes save everyone a few minutes on their journeys, which adds up, you know, over the course of your year to, to hours and hours of time that you've avoided traffic. And at a certain point, you come to the realization that there's just not enough roads in the world to navigate everyone around traffic. At the end of the day, we are the traffic and we have to do something to reduce, uh, to reduce that. And so, um, I think we work on that on one big way and one um, way that I think is a little bit smaller, but also very important. And and those are the two programs that our team works on. And so the first is really with Waze Carpool, which unfortunately is not available yet in the UK, but we hope that it will be um, as we come out of the pandemic and looking at kind of new markets and new opportunities. We would love to um, really start to expand into Europe. But Waze Carpool um, is available in the US, in Mexico, Brazil, and Israel, which are some of the countries where we have the most core Waze users. Um, and really the idea for Carpool is that we have millions of people who are using the Waze navigation app every day to drive. If we could get a fraction of them to agree to take another person or after we have a vaccine to take a few people in their car with them where they're going, we can make a huge impact to reduce the number of private vehicles on the road, to reduce the overall amount of traffic, to reduce the amount of emissions um, that these cars are producing and, and make places work better. Um, I think everyone would be happier if they spent less time in traffic. Everyone would be happier if there's cleaner air to build, breathe. I think everyone's happier when they save a few bucks because they're not having to drive alone and maintain a car and pay for gas and parking and all of those miserable things. Um, so I think that that's very much aligned with what Waze wants to do um, and where we want to go. I think for places that don't have carpool yet, um, the data sharing program is also really important because I think it can help um, government decision makers make more informed decisions about their policies and have some data to back up the decisions um, that they make. Um, there was really um, an excellent project uh, that was done during this time by Breathe London, um, and they looked at Waze traffic data in relation to um, air quality monitoring data that they had um, in London, and they were able to kind of show the impact of having these mobility restrictions on actual, um, you know, traffic jam uh, extents in London and that that had um, a really strong uh, connection with the air quality improvements that were being seen. And I think that 
you know, there was all sorts of factors, I'm sure, that weighed into um, the mayor's uh, decision to expand some of the congestion charging uh, hours. Um, but I think that having data like that about sort of air quality impacts and being able to make a case to citizens that um, that there is a huge benefit to these kinds of policies, even if some people kind of go, oh my gosh, like more restrictions, like, you know, it's making it harder for me to drive. Well, yes, but it's also making it better for everyone in the whole metropolitan area just to be able to breathe. Um, and I think, um, and I think that that kind of data can be, um, very compelling. I think another thing um, that I would love to see cities doing more with our data is because we can provide data on um, traffic jams um, and you can get historic data, um, you know, looking back about a year and a half now through our integration with Google Cloud. Um, cities could actually be using this to baseline before they put in a new project, whether it's a new um, protected bike lane or a cycle track or a, a protected bus lane or a bus rapid transit system, you could actually look at the extensive traffic jams along those corridors before and after um, and start to really demonstrate. I think a lot of times people say like, oh, these projects are just going to make traffic worse, but you can start to demonstrate um, what is usually proven out, which is that usually actually they improve the flow of traffic on those corridors and or they have very minimal imp impact. And I think um, having that data at hand for cities that are trying to make these reforms could be really useful as well. Yeah, definitely. I think what's really encouraging, even if it's not currently being used, is the fact that that data is there and it's available. And like you said, I think when it comes to uh, implementing bus lanes or starting up like a bus rapid transit system, there can be a lot of political pushback um, and having the data there to support a decision is absolutely crucial. Uh, and I think it's that kind of data that's going to um, really drive the kind of future shape of our, of our streets and our cities, which is, which is fantastic. I mean, you've touched on it there, but you know, it's increasingly the responsibility of public and private partners to mitigate the negative effects of, of driving and of, of traffic, whether that is climate, whether it's congestion, whatever it might be. I mean, now that we're within a pandemic situation as well, I mean, how do you strike that balance between supporting drivers um, who have to make essential journeys, I suppose, but also promoting other potential mobility options um, to make people feel as safe as possible when they're traveling kind of post the COVID peak? Yeah, I mean, I think for, um, I think for people who need to be driving, um, you know, our focus on having kind of reliable, accurate, up-to-date information in the app um, has taken on kind of a sharpened importance right now. Um, people who are in their cars who really need to go somewhere um, want to be able to do that in a way that is safe and efficient. Um, and I think that that's both because everyone's trying to, you know, drive less to respond to these um, mobility restrictions that are still in place in a lot of areas around the world. And then also I think um, some of the economic challenges of the pandemic have also made it so that people you know, can't afford to just be driving around wasting gas, um, on, on trips, um, that aren't, that aren't working for them to have a detour that's taking you too far out of your way or to go to a store and it's closed because the hours weren't updated, um, on the app. 
um, I think can be incredibly frustrating and stressful when you're struggling with with some of the economic um, impacts of the pandemic as well. So we're really trying to make sure that we have information that is um, relevant and useful and up to date for folks. Um, we have some special things that we've done during this time as well. In the U.S., we've worked with some of our partner, um, parking partners, um, Spot Hero and ParkWiz, uh, to make sure that parking um, for essential workers near their places of work were clearly mapped um, on the Waze map. And um, Spot Hero and ParkWiz have been offering some special discounts for essential workers who need to drive and park um, right now. And then I think that our teams that work on Carpool are really thinking about how we um, continue to evolve the value proposition for Carpool um, and the audiences that we're speaking to with Carpool. I think that there is um, a huge amount of potential for that. Like I'm, you know, because of the markets we operate in, I'm just going to talk about the U.S. for a minute and I hope that your um, listeners can, can bear with me. But if you look across the U.S., um, the average commute length in the U.S. is 13 miles and that is a distance that is not especially well served by some of the kind of newer mobility um, uh, innovations that I think are capturing the imagination in a lot of our urban cores. And I think that um, if you live close enough to your work that you can take a scooter or take a bike, I think that that is fantastic. But we know, based on the data in the U.S., that unfortunately, a lot of lower income workers are getting pushed out further and further from the urban core as urban cores have been revitalized. And so they're the ones who are going to have these longer commutes. We know from our data, they are, their commutes often tend to be extremely complicated because maybe they're, you know, going one place for work half a day and then going somewhere else for the other half of the day, or they're going to work and then they're going to school. Um, people have a lot of different um, types of those situations, let alone just the struggle of trying to be on kind of the urban fringe and you might have, you know, a two or three bus transfer to get to your job downtown. And so I think, you know, there's a huge amount of potential for carpool coming out of this as people have been really hard hit um, economically by the pandemic. People are trying to figure out how to get back to work. I think people are still, um, you know, a little bit reticent to get on some forms of public transportation. I think carpool can be kind of an intermediate solution in some places and might be a permanent solution for some people in those places for how they can get to work in a way that feels more direct, uh, more affordable, not as stressful, um, but still, you know, not as, not as um, polluting and taxing on the urban infrastructure as driving alone. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think it is vital for people, like you said, to have more direct services um, if they're not directly in, in that urban centre, but also for them to have access to services that kind of work around their schedules, uh, as you hinted at, and making sure that those services are more flexible than like a fixed route line, for example. Yeah. Um, yeah. As you see with with a lot of mass transit systems. Um, so, you know, it, it is really important that these services are on offer to people um, to allow life to get back to some kind of normality. Um, you know, once yeah. the kind of peak has, has uh, kind of slowed down a little. You know, in a lot of places in the US, we're also seeing that there's been this kind of downward spiral because ridership has dropped, which has really hit fare box recovery for transit agencies. 
transit agencies, a lot of whom are already, you know, feeling a little bit cash strapped in the US are really struggling and are going to be kind of facing some serious questions about service cuts um, over the next few months. And, you know, I hope that our federal government will get it together and, you know, issue more funding for these transit agencies. But right now, it's still very much up in the air. And there are essential workers who very much depend on these services. And if their bus routes are cut, we need to have other options. And I think that that's where having something that does have this flexibility um, that comes really at no cost to the public sector, um, that is still very affordable for riders, especially compared with some of the other options that they might have. You know, taking a private taxi every day is not affordable for people who are making, you know, 10 or 12 bucks an hour. So I think that carpool kind of also can play a role in kind of filling those gaps that are that are seeming like they're getting even wider or could be getting even wider over the next few months. Yeah, absolutely. I couldn't couldn't agree more. I, you know, it's it is absolutely vital that the response from public private organizations uh and also governments, you know, have to get the response right and they have to take the right approach to ensure um because it it's not just the case of people, you know, one or two people need to get to work it's essentially the entire global economy that is at risk here um i think that is slowly filtering in um certainly in the uk we are if if not already in a recession on the very precipice so i think that that messaging is is gradually seeping through to the public uh not just you know kind of government level um and i don't think many governments around the world can afford the kind of backlash that would come uh if they got their response to the pandemic wrong um but you know what that's probably another discussion for another time um <laughs> but thank you very much indeed uh for for joining me i've now taken up a fair bit of your time already so we'll leave it there for now but thank you very much for joining me uh it's been absolutely fantastic to to speak with you and uh yeah i'm sure it won't be the last time thanks a lot thank you so much my sincere thanks again to danny for joining me for our chat i had a great time catching up on Wazer's activities during the last few months and as always, I, I leave this conversation just infused, really, to get the opportunity to talk to somebody who is so like-minded and whose focus is on improving this industry. We'll be back in a couple of weeks' time with a new episode, but before then, don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and also become a member at intelligenttransport.com for plenty more exclusive content. I'll catch you next time, but for now, take care and stay safe.